Well, we're studying the uh, book of Proverbs and in generally and specifically uh, looking at the uh, fear of the Lord. I opened up my journal and my habit would be each morning uh, I rise up in the morning and I get a cup of coffee. Um, I brew it myself. He brews, you know. And uh, anyhow... Okay. A cup of coffee sort of gives me a little bit of, of a wake-up, and then I'm just being transparent with you, and you're, you're free to ask me, am I still doing it? Um, and then I go into my study, and the very first thing I do is after a couple of sips of coffee, even before I sit down, I put my coffee down, and, and I get down on my knees and I pray. There's nothing magical about getting on your knees. You can go to the Scriptures, and you can pray standing up with hands up. You can lay prostate on the ground. Uh, you can stand around in a circle with your hands clasped. There is no prescriptive way to pray. I don't get on my knees to get closer to God. I don't get on my knees to earn favor with God. I get on my knees to remind me who I am and who He is. And, and, and to worship Him and, and, and to praise Him. And, and this is how I start most every morning. Different words, different words, but this is the heart. And I think it's, it's the heart of believers. I remind myself. He doesn't need any reminding. He's never forgotten anything. There's never a thing that he doesn't know. But I remind myself that he's the potter and I'm the clay. I remind myself that he's the king. I'm his subject. I remind myself that he's the master. I'm his slave. I remind myself that by his grace, he's my heavenly father. And I'm his adopted son. And I go through reminding myself those things and just thanking him for the grace of another day and asking him would he speak to me through his word and then I get up and I, and I get into my Bible and um, it's not a long prayer time it's a prayer time to prepare my heart for the word and, and then I open my journal and I select something I'm going to read usually there's purpose and intent in that and I always write scripture Again, it's not prescriptive. It's something that I do. I'm sharing that with you. Part of the job of an elder, us older men and younger women, is to be transparent of what, of what we do. And so this is the verse that I wrote there today because what do you think's on my mind? The what? The fear of the Lord's on my mind. And so I went to one of the many passages in the first place that it's used in Psalm 19:9 in the book of Psalms is the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Nasby. The fear of the Lord is clean. We've talked about how the fear of the Lord leads us towards holiness because it leads us towards God. The fear of the Lord is clean, and its study and its pursuit is enduring. It's everlasting. It's eternal. There, there isn't anything that we could do that would be a, of a greater blessing and a longer value and a greater value than to study the, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's enduring forever. We're looking at the book of Proverbs, and we've sort of enrolled ourselves into the school of Proverbs. You have in your handout there that, as I said, Solomon wrote this book. He probably wrote it when he was a middle-aged man, or what we would call middle-aged today, uh, 40-ish. 
is um, the thinking. And the book is primarily written and geared towards younger men. Um, and in fact, um, you might say that there's a, a sign over the door of his school that says, if you're young, if you're simple, if you're foolish, you're welcome, come on in. Now, if we're honest, we've all been young, we've all been simple or naive, and we've all been foolish, and, and the book of Proverbs is, is given to us that we might, we might be wise, that we might have God's wisdom, that we might have God's understanding. And it's, it's such, a, it's such a, a great book of study. This is exactly what he's saying. If you look at Proverbs chapter 1, you see right out of the gate, we've looked at it before, but look at it again. Solomon is writing this. He's the son of David. And in verse 2 it says, To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the simple, to the young knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise knowledge. To understand a proverb and the figure and the words of the wise and their riddles. So we see that right out of the gate. Here's, here's the intent of the book of Proverbs and who it's geared to. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 just takes that same thought and it goes a little bit deeper. Chapter 2 says, My son... If you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure. So the writer of Proverbs tells us it's a design. But notice what it goes immediately to after telling us design, given the, the basis or the foundation, how do we accomplish those things? And look at verse 7 in chapter 1, which we've studied before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. That word means the, the first place. It's just, just like you would think, first in line. This is where we start. It's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord, you might say, is our, it's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning to know God. And then the opposite is right, right there, but fools. Fools, what do they do? They despise wisdom and instruction. You might say that in the second half of the verse, we got the barrier to wisdom. The barrier of wisdom is, I, I refuse it. I won't listen to it. I don't want it. I hate it. And look over at chapter 2 and verse 6. Almost the same thoughts or the same idea. For the Lord gives, excuse me, chapter 5, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. When, when we're searching for these things that I read, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and you will discover the knowledge uh, of God. So we're, we're looking at the 
fear of the Lord. It's interesting to note, we've studied the book of Psalms now for a year and a half, and we're taking a break, at least until the summer, before we return, and we're going to look at this topic of the fear of the Lord, and within that, some of the book of Proverbs. And we see there's a stark contrast between the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms, isn't there? And I put some of those in your in, in your handout, I think, but Psalms, um, as you know, are authored by David, or most of them, 73 of them for sure are titled by David. And he lived a life full of danger and war, while Solomon, he lived a life of peace and quietness. I mean, really, two completely different lives, father and son. The Psalms reflect the intensity of worship and praise that filled David's life. He was the brave, valiant warrior who was constantly being delivered from perils and death by the hand of a faithful God. Solomon didn't know any of this. The Proverbs reflect the quiet study and meditation of Solomon. He was a, a man of peace who had much time to think on the bounty of God and what a man's personal relationship would be with God. And um, there was a time in his life when he was very close to the Lord. And we've mentioned that before. First Kings 4, 29 and 30 says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is in the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. David handed to his son a kingdom that was at peace, um, a kingdom that had subdued its enemies. And Solomon had God's very words. There was a time in his life when he feared the Lord and loved the Lord, but something happened. And... Um, we'll see that ultimately he stopped loving the Lord and stopped doing the things that had him at this point. We know that both the book of Psalms and Proverbs had human authors, and yet those human authors were moved by the Holy Spirit. They're scripture, they're divine, they're the very words of God spoken through men. I remind us of that as we come to this book. They're two different books, and, and, and they seem completely different, but, but it's all woven together as part of God's revelation to us. So it's God speaking to us. First Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. First Peter 1, 21 says, for there's no prophecy made by an act of the human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit of God. These words are inspired while they're written. While they're written by fallible men, the Spirit of God gave them infallibility as they wrote the very words of God, and we have them, and we should treasure. We should treasure them greatly. It's all part of the proper um, fear of the Lord. So thus we come to Proverbs and we see here is the, the school that the foolish can become wise, the simple or the naive 
and the young can inexperienced can gain discernment and wisdom but it all begins with the fear of the Lord you don't just jump in you have to have the fear of the Lord for all of this wisdom and understanding and discretion to be imparted from you otherwise all it does is puff you up all it does is make you proud um, and and we know that the very book that Solomon wrote says that um, pride leads to a very great fall. It's not this, the habit, the, 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 the sign over the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon lived a life that was a great fall. He comes to the end and he says, what? The whole duty of man, fear God, keep his commandments. See, he learned the hard way. The way he lived after age 40 was all vanity. He said it's all vanity. And when we live apart from the fear of God and the word of God, it is vain. Our life is vain. But the word of God and the fear of the Lord is pure. Uh, tried seven times, the Bible says, and uh, it endures forever. So what a, what a great study. The fear of the Lord is something that can be learned. And as it's learned and applied, one grows in wisdom and understanding. And so that's why I want us to grasp this. I want to take you to a passage that you may not be familiar with. As a matter of fact, you probably are not. But I think it will help amplify its importance. So I'd like you to go, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. You're probably thinking, well, I thought we were in Proverbs and I thought we were looking at the fear of the Lord. Well, we are, but I want you to you see that the whole idea of the fear of the Lord is something that Scripture is full of. And all the way back, as God has assembled and called out a people by his name, we have the, the book of Deuteronomy. And chapters 16 through 18 basically deal with the responsibility of officials or leaders, and in this case it's going to end up being kings, to maintain pure worship within the land and administer justice impartially. Believe it or not, there used to be a time when this nation was founded that those were our, ideal, our, were our ideals, done imperfectly, just like they certainly were there, but that was part of our Christian or Judeo-Christian heritage that, that we one time had. And as soon as you stop losing that from the highest positions, then you stop having that kind of justice and equity to all. And you, you end up with the, the mess that we have here, which we've seen happen to nation after nation through the history of man. Don't worry, this isn't a God and country message. Okay, I'm not going there, but I'm just making the obvious points that when you you look through here. And so we're going to look at this narrative. I remind you it's a narrative. What do I mean by a narrative? It's a story. A narrative is not prescriptive. At least it's not prescriptive for us. It was prescriptive to the people that we're going to see, particularly the kings and, and, and the people that, that it's speaking to. But it's a story. It's part of God's redemptive story. And we ought to look, as we look at the story, anytime we come to a narrative, we ought to ask ourselves, what does this picture, narrative, what is the story 
tell us and teach us about God, who he is, about his character, uh, about how, how God responds and what he does. What can I learn about God from this narrative? And then we also should look at a narrative and we should ask ourselves the question, what does this narrative teach me about the character of man? How does man respond to God and respond to, to situations? And, and always, the entire Bible is the, it's the unfolding revelation of the wonderful redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And so there's always a thread that leads us to the cross. And uh, you look for that in a, in a narrative. And so you have here a, a narrative given to the nation, that the leaders, the kings that are coming, God knew the kings were coming because they wouldn't be satisfied having only him. They wanted a king, if you remember, like all the other nations. And so God's going to let them have their way. He's going to let them have a king, but he has instructions for the king so that the king would, would rule right. And so this is, this is the story that we have here. And I want you to see how much it connects to our topic and how much we can learn from it. Look at chapter 17 and verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. See, God knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what we're going to do ahead of time. And so he has a plan. He's never caught by surprise. He wasn't caught by surprise that Israel was going to do this. He knows that they're, they're going to call for a king. So he says, okay, I'll give you a king. Verse 15. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves, you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. So you see here that this passage is what is to be done with kings. I've often taken principles from this passage when I'm meeting with men and teaching and leadership. It's a very good passage for principles from that standpoint. Notice there's an assumption here that the nation of Israel, that, the, that they have countrymen. They know who's, who's in the country and who's out of the country. They, they know who are their members and who are not their members. That's how a church is supposed to be. It's not loose and it's not fuzzy. You're either a member or you're not a member. And we know who the members are. And... and we would only take leaders that are members, right? The, the deacons that we're going to set apart to serve or the elders that are going to be set apart to lead uh, or, or other areas of ministry. They're going to be countrymen. They're going to be people that belong, that have committed themselves, that are, that are part of it. And, and you, you see that all the way back, this isn't a new concept. This is all the way back here. We're at the very beginning. We're in the Pentateuch. We're in, in Deuteronomy. And there was a differentiation between those that were on the inside and those that were out. You might say, they even use the word foreigners here. Uh, there's a difference between a citizen and an immigrant that is not yet a citizen. I mean, there's a difference, in the, and they knew who they were, and they knew there was a difference. I just want you to see that, because there's amazing the applications all the way through life. 
when you don't know this, when you don't separate it, when you, when you don't have an understanding of it and then apply it biblically. And you notice the leaders always come from within. Look at verses 17 and 16 and 17. Moreover, this is speaking of the king, the king that you're going to put there that's going to be one of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply. I want you to notice here, basically three times, the king's told, he's told, whoever is going to be the king is not supposed to do three things. All right? Look him, count him. He shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not um, multiply, um, where am I lost? My, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt. To multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not multiply wives to himself, or his heart will turn away, and he shall not greatly increase silver and gold to himself, nor silver or gold. And so you see that there's three um, things that, uh, that, that the king is basically saying. He's not supposed to rely on military might. In, in those days, if you had the horses, you had the upper hand. Uh, the, the object here is no military might. You, we don't want the dependence of the king to be on his military. We don't want the dependence of the king to be on his wealth or political affliction of, you know, affiliations. That's what all the wives were about. I'm sure the wives were about immorality. But beyond in, immorality, that's what everybody did, get, uh, you know, different countries. So you wouldn't, you would have the favor of Solomon. You you gave him one of your daughters to wife, and he took all these wives and all of these concubines. It was really political um, arrangements to, to make sure that everything would be set um, politically. And, and, and God is saying, you need to depend on me, not on other nations, not on your wealth, not on your strength, not on your, not, not on your charisma. This is what you do. You depend on me and me alone. So... No, 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 don't do these things. And in fact, if you do do these things, and particularly the women, the wives, it'll turn your heart. Now, let's just stop right here. Did, that all, did all that happen? Isn't that exactly what happened? Isn't that the life of David and the life of Solomon? Uh, the, 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 it turned, and, and men that were walking in the right direction failed and fell. And so uh, here, here we see what happens when we, Hold loosely the words of the of the written of the written God. The Lord then gives a prescription for success. I want you to see it's rooted in the wisdom and sufficiency of Scripture and the fear of the Lord. And you know it's it's never changed. It's where you're going to find good success. If you happen to use the King James version of the Bible, the word success is only used in the King James Version of the Bible, one place. Joshua 1.9. This book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth. I will meditate on it day and night that thou might have good success. It's translated success in the, in the King James. You can't remove success, faithfulness to God, apart from God's way and God's word. And it's basically what it's going to, Tell us right here. Look at the prescription for the king in verse 18. It's stunning to me. 
Now it shall come about when he sits on his throne in the kingdom, he shall write a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Why? Think about it for a moment. Could he go down to Lifeway or any other place? Could he order a Bible on Amazon? Do they have any scripture? No. Priests had them. What there was, what there was written. And so he was to take that which had been written on a scroll and he was to take that scroll supervised by a Levitical person and he was to copy his own copy of the scripture. Isn't that amazing? I mean, is that what it says? Uh, give me a yes or no. Are we all agreeing that's, that's what he was supposed to do? I mean, you would think a king might be a little bit busier than to have time to just take and copy his own copy if there's one at the temple. No, no, look. No, God says, I want you to have your own copy. I want you to write. I want you to write the very words of the living God yourself. Now look what else he says. He shall write for himself, notice that, a copy of this law. And, and the, impre- the, the reason that it's in the presence of the, of the Levitical priest is to make sure he gets it right. He didn't miss a word. He didn't, he, didn't say, he didn't write something that wasn't there to make sure it's correct. Okay? Now look at 19. And it shall be with him. So now this that he's written, he's supposed to keep with him. And he shall read it. How often should he read it? What does it say? All the days of his life. So, sounds like it's pretty important. It's something that he continuously does. He writes and he reads. He writes and he reads. And to what end? That he may learn to what? To fear the Lord his God. Being carefully and by carefully observing all the words of the law and the statutes. Look at verse 20 that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of, of Israel. That he might fear the Lord, and that he might walk in humility rather than pride. We're going to study out of the fear of the Lord. I told you, humility. Humility versus pride. It's connected. Wisdom, humility, the fear of the Lord. They, they connect together. Let me ask you a question as, we, as we're still heading back into here. What happened after Solomon's kingdom when he died? And his sons came in. The kingdom was what? Divided. What I want you to see is how sufficient and accurate and errant and perfect this word is. Was there continuation for Solomon? Yes, in his mercy, because of the Davidic promise, there would always be a person that would sit on the throne. But the, but the nation was divided. And, and you know all of the perils and all the pain of the, of the divided nation. All because they lost the fear of the Lord. All because they stopped believing this book 
taking this book in, studying this book, believing that this book is the very words of the living God. I got homework for you. If you've seen it before, you'll be stirred by seeing it again. Go to YouTube or else go to Desiring God and look up the little video. There's a longer one, but there's a little one. That's the one I want you on. It's about a five-minute and 30-second video that Piper did that every time I watch it, I get chills and repent all over again. And it's simply this. God wrote a book. How many of you have seen that video before? God wrote a book. Go, go to YouTube. Get that. It, it'll be a very profitable five minutes for you. And think about it. And think about the fear of the Lord. It's pure. It's enduring. It's the, it's the words of the Lord. But do we approach Him and His... But you realize that one of the things that we'll see as we're studying here, you can't separate God's Word from God. What you do with God's word, you do with God. The word was made, what? Flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we saw the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. You can't separate how you respond and how you treat and how you think about the very words of the living God from God himself. And as we understand that our reverence and our awe for our holy God will increase along with our wisdom and our understanding and then our impact and our influence on this nation which desperately needs it. So go watch the video. I know we're moving slow. I move when I'm teaching like a caterpillar. I'm sorry. That's me. And uh, come back next week. Let me know how the video went. God bless you. You are dismissed.